Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary, and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. Welcome to In Her Shoes. I'm Lindsay Peoples, and I'm Editor-in-Chief of The Cut. On this show, I get to talk to people that we love and admire, or some that we just find interesting. We'll explore how they found their path and what maybe have gotten in their way, and how they brought others along now that they've arrived. So five years ago, I wrote a piece called Everywhere and Nowhere, what it's really like to be black and work in fashion. This meant a lot to me for many reasons, but the main one would be the fact that I wanted to talk about the lack of inclusivity and diversity in the industry in a way that would hold the industry accountable and attempt to move things forward. And Tracy Reese was one of the first designers that I personally remember adoring and realizing that she was a Black female designer. And so to be able to chat with her, I interviewed her for this piece five years ago and was able to reach out to her again now, as she's now the founder of Hope for Flowers. And in particular, she was a person that was formative for me in the industry and someone that I wanted in the piece five years ago and now because she is someone that has seen so much as a Black woman in the industry and has been a champion for Black designers for decades. So we were able to talk about what's changed and how far she's come and how much work still needs to be done. Okay, so in our traditional in her shoes fashion, I have to ask what kind of shoes you have on right now um, or what are your favorite pair of shoes to wear right now and describe them for our listeners of why you like these pairs of shoes so much. You know what, to be very transparent, I wear Birkenstocks almost all summer long and I'm wearing these like, I'm wearing these like leather or Jill Sander Birkenstocks, the ones that make your big foot look even bigger. Those are not regular Birkenstocks. I wear wear regular Birkenstocks as well, just like Arizona two straps. Okay. Love that. Mm -hmm. I do wear a Birk all the time. I know. And it's funny, though. It's like, you know, when fall is coming, you're like, okay, I have to upgrade slightly what I'm doing here, you know? So I've been on the hunt. I don't know. I have to be in New York next week. So I think I'll go shoe shopping. I love shoe shopping. Um, So I wanted to read back one of your quotes from when I spoke to you five years ago for the Black and Fashion piece. 
Um, you said, I started my first collection in 86, 87 and had built enough relationships where people were willing to take a chance on me. But I definitely felt like I wasn't taken seriously as a businesswoman. Back in the day, New York City's garment district was full of all these old men who had been in the game for 30 and 40 years. I'm talking about all the little factories and jobbers and trim people. If they saw that you were serious, they'd give you a hard time in the beginning. But if you persevered, then they were in your corner. It didn't matter what color you were. It just mattered if you were serious about being a designer and surviving in the industry. I would love for you to take me back to that specific time in your life when you were just starting an industry, trying to make connections with all of these people. What did that moment feel like for you in navigating the fashion world and, and trying for people to understand your vision? Right. And it's interesting, too. I mean, that was the 80s. And I think the 80s were different than the 90s. They're different than the aughts. I think that the 80s were strangely a little more inclusive than the 90s and the aughts were. You know, we just felt like all things were possible. And I think when you're young and you're somewhat naive and you're not jaded at all and you haven't had a lot of adversity, I'll put it that way, I think that, you know, you're just going to push through and you're going to figure it out and all of my friends were in a similar, similar boat, you know, went to school with Mark Jacobs. He was starting his business. My friend Chris Isles had a little store down in the East Village. Everybody was doing their own thing. You know, they had those infamous uh, midnight fashion shows like at Palladium, you know, and like at least once a week, you'd be down there helping somebody backstage get their little runway thing together. So there was just the spirit of can do. And mm. I think that we rode that wave and it, it fueled us, you know, and, it, and we kept each other afloat because everybody was sort of in the same boat. Nobody was making money. We were all hopeful that we would get a strong enough launch that we would catch the eye of a backer. You know, that mm -hmm. was always the thinking back in the day. But it was it was exciting. It was challenging as hell, but it was exciting. I mean, I would be in the factory, like, clipping threads off my production and putting hang tags on. And I remember my friend Eric Gaskins coming over to help me put the poly bags on. And we, we hailed taxis to take the production up to Bergdorf Goodman because they're receiving closed at 2.30. And it's just like, we've got to get up there, you know, and we're in these taxis going up. He's in a taxi ahead of mine and I'm following. And we're like, get to 59th Street and 6th Avenue. And I see him get out of his taxi and he starts running down 58th Street so he could get his foot in the door before they closed. We all did it together. I would see like right. six other designers at UPS on the 31st or the 30th of the month loading up, you know, our production to ship to stores. And we were all there like at closing time, you know, writing out our bills of lading and doing all of the the grunt work. We did it all ourselves. But it was it was an incredible energy, you know. When you talk about those decades, walk me through a bit of what you feel like was a defining point in each and the differences, because you've obviously seen the fashion industry shift so much. And I think for people now, we take so many of these things like social media and that for granted. I, I know that was obviously not even 
um, a reality in the 80s, 90s, but walk me through what you feel like the differences were in each decade of you working in fashion. Yeah. So the 80s, that was a kind of a, a good explanation of just the energy of it and the energy of New York and and the fashion district was intact. You know, there were all of these small factories and trim suppliers. It was like the old fashion industry in New York. The 90s, you know, I started working for others. I worked for Perry Ellis. I worked for a bridge company called Magashoni, and they ultimately put my name on the label when we started having runway shows. But still, we're looking at a fashion week in New York. New York Fashion Week was like 40 shows, you know, and it was during the 90s that um, 7th on 6th was established because I remember we first started showing at Parsons. They had that auditorium, you know, and we were students back in the 80s. We would sneak into that auditorium to see the Ann Klein show or whatever runway shows were happening there. Um, but Fashion Week became centralized in the 90s. And it became larger because um, IMG stepped into the picture and it and really kind of blew New York Fashion Week up into, you know, this huge event. So it was much more private before. And this was way before social media. It was strictly industry. It was editors and buyers, you know, so it was a much more intimate thing. And you knew who all of your buyers were. You knew the editors, you know, it was just a much smaller circle and people knew you, you know, and luckily mm -hmm. by the nineties, I had between those experiences built up more of a reputation for myself. So when I launched my own brand again in 96, um, I knew who my buyers were. I knew the buyer at Saks. I knew the buyers at Nordstrom. I knew, you know, the buyers at Bindles and Bergdorf's and we were able to get the product placed. And I was brought up to sort of just chart my own path and sort of not look to the left or right and not worry about what I wasn't getting due to my race. It was just like, you know what, I'm, I am me and I know that I have these capabilities and I'm going to move forward. So if something doesn't come my way, then it wasn't meant for me. Yeah. Um, and I still feel that way, but I think that when I started my business the second time and, you know, it got larger, a lot, I had a really strong, uh, LA rep who repped the line and people were under the impression that I was white and that I was LA based mm -hmm. because her business was so strong. And I remember thinking to myself, I don't need to disabuse them of that idea. When I first started that business, I had a black sales rep in New York. Her name was Tony Jones and we were friends. We were like, okay, you know, she was very like-minded. We we're going to make this happen. I swear, Lindsay, we could not get arrested. It was, there was something about the two of us together that was too much for people. Mm. And we we would scratch our heads because she was well known. She had a following. I was known. I had a following. Together, it was like one plus one equals zero. It was crazy. And after about nine months, she bowed out. And a friend of hers, who was 
white. Um, and we were in the same showroom space. They were sharing showroom space. The other rep said, I'll take the line. All of a sudden it blew up. And it was like, they only could take a small dose, you know, one of us at a time. And then Tony yeah. opened up her own showroom and she also, you know, became more successful without me. So we became more successful without each other. I don't know what that was about. I mean, I sort of do. And I, but it was, it was very interesting. And, you know, we would look back on that and like kind of scratch our heads like, wow, that was special. But it was the beginning of only one person in the room, I felt, because I'd, I'd never felt that when I was younger. I never felt that like in the 80s. But in the 90s, I did feel that way. And right. when I worked at Magashoni, my boss was Asian. She was Chinese. And she had factories in Hong Kong and in China. And I remember it was very important for her that I wear like designer accessories. You know, she'd buy me Gucci shoes and Hermes scarves. And it was like this validation, like, you know, kind of putting me in luxury labels made me acceptable in the space, you know, but she would do the same for herself too, you know? And I, I remember there being that little undercurrent of you have to make yourself acceptable to be in certain spaces by wearing luxury goods. Yeah. I mean, I'm curious though, because I feel like you have always been a person who understands the landscape, but also was very like, I'm focused on what I'm, what I'm doing yep. um, and like aware of everything, but also just very focused on what you wanted to do. What, and I know that you've also just experienced a lot that has been discouraging as well. And so I'm curious of when you felt like you had the courage or um, just enough strength in yourself to say, like, I really want to go out on my own, regardless of being aware of all of the the pitfalls and, and downfalls and, and where your head was at at that time. Yeah. And I really didn't, I didn't see it as pitfalls and downfalls. I just, I really saw it much more as what I wanted to do and what I was sure I could accomplish, you know, and we were prepared as children to work hard. You know, I remember my dad sitting us down and saying, you're going to have to work harder. You know, you're going to have to do more to succeed. And he was very clear about it. And, you know, he was someone who worked in the automotive industry for decades and was passed over for position after position, training white executives for the jobs that he was already doing without the title. And he was only the, the second black plant manager in the big three here in the U.S. But it was a struggle for him to, to get there. And he really experienced so much more discrimination than I ever felt. But I think it was super important to me to succeed because I had been given all of these incredible tools and I had all of this support um, within my family and within the industry from people that I had worked for or worked alongside in the past. So I never felt that it was not possible for me. Um, I failed miserably with my first business. And I honestly attributed to that to my youth, my lack of experience, much more than being a female or being a person of color, you know. So 
when I came back the second time, I felt better equipped. I had more experience. I had an Mm -hmm. even broader network and I've been blessed with opportunities all along the way. I knew that I had to consult alongside having my own business to to make Mm -hmm. ends meet. And I had those opportunities. So what's happening out there and what's always been happening is very legit, but I can't carry that burden with me every day. I'm I'm optimistic, you know, and I believe in me. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Pod wherever you get your podcasts. As a black woman in the industry, um, we both of us, I think, know that there's always an extra layer of navigation and consideration for the decisions that you make or the path that you choose to go down. Um, And I think a lot of people specifically when you're talking about designers have chosen, I really want to just have my own thing and be off in my own world. And then there are people who really want to get into the fashion game and have shows and, and do do that, which is a whole other ball game. Um, walk me through any of the pressures that you're thinking through that the first or the second time of you just understanding when people were aware of the pressure and you being a black female designer, because I think I, I remember from the outside in when I, when I first found out about you and your designs, there still hasn't even been a ton of Black female designers. And I can't imagine the kind of pressure of being aware of that, but also aware of the navigation that you have to have in the industry. And I think it's part of how we were brought up and raised. I think some of it, you just did it intuitively. I've never been a person who craves publicity. And I don't, you don't have to see my face, you know, you just have to see my work and hopefully enjoy my work. And I think that might've worked in my favor to some degree in the earlier days of, of the collection, because if you wanted to discriminate against me or my clothing, because I was black, you didn't know I was black. I would meet so many customers. Like by the time, you know, we were doing like trunk shows with Nordstrom and things like that, they were just like, their mouths would kind of hang open because I wasn't what, you know, who they expected to see. Yeah. But that was on them. It it couldn't be my problem. We were prepared by our parents and by my, my grandparents before them to show up in a certain way and to assume that we would be treated correctly if we came correctly. And that was just how we were raised and there have been incidents here and there, but by and large, I I felt largely embraced and I was grateful for it. 
there's another quote in here that I just brought up and you said it's up to us to create a strong network. People see the models and designers, but they don't see the wholesale teams, the buyers in training, the store managers and fashion directors. We're not in positions of strength in retail ranks and we're not controlling any part of the supply chain. That's true. In that time, in that time we're in now, um, have you seen us represented in those roles that you've mentioned? Do you feel like there's actually been a shift on that end? There's been a slight shift. I think at retail, but not, not the percentage, you know, we're not seeing 15% buyers out there, you know, yeah. some stores have definitely taken the 15% pledge and they're trying to stick with it. And, you know, that's been a very um, positive thing, but some people have done it for show and, and dropped lines the minute that the, the music stopped basically and kind of left people hanging. So that's been very challenging, but there's a few more people of color, black people, you know, indigenous people, East Indian people that I see when I'm at market, there's a little bit more, but not the percentages that you would like to see or that feel correct. It's a slow process. And I think with this whole Supreme Court ruling against affirmative action, I think that we really have to step up the pressure because I think a lot of people are going to feel like, oh, well, I don't have to do this difficult thing anymore. So it'll be interesting to see if people keep their promises and their pledges. I don't haven't seen much like reporting lately on what has the progress been. At CFDA, we got tons of pushback when Impact was trying to gather data from different brands. And there was just like, I mean, the pushback was just insane. You know, people did not want to reveal the makeup of their employees. They did not want to share that information because it wasn't good. Some people are opening up about it a little bit more. Maybe their numbers have improved slightly. I don't know. Um, but where's the accountability really, you know, and there isn't really a body that can hold um, stores, brands, anybody accountable. I mean, yeah. as black people, we still have very little stake in supply chain. I mean, like, and some of that is just, we all have our, our specialties, you know, the supply chain is largely Asian since production left the U.S., you know, and went to China and Vietnam and all of these Asian countries. That's not terribly unusual, but I think, you know, it's still important for us to have strong bonds either with that community or create our own supply chain. And not that things have to be segregated, but we are very much locked out of the root of the materials and components and and the shipping networks and all the things that, you know, are part of what makes this business tick. We don't have to be experts at everything. We don't have to dominate every field. But I find that it can be challenging to develop relationships if we're not represented. You know, not impossible, yeah. but challenging, more challenging. I think in all of that, though, what do you feel like has actually changed? And I mean, I, I talk about this with so many people because I remember doing the piece and 
being worried about what people would think about my motivations around it. I, I do think that there used to be this overarching feeling that if you wanted to talk about racism, that you were just complaining right. for no reason. You don't want to hear it. Right? right. And it just had this simmering annoyance in me that I wanted to be able to talk about something without people really listening to us and actually understanding the issues. But I do think now in, that it has been five years, I think there's less stigma around us being able to talk about these things, but I don't really feel that there's been such a huge shift. Right. Um, and I'm curious of what you think has actually changed right. in the industry. But, you know, that piece that you wrote, Lindsay, was groundbreaking. That sent shocks around the industry for sure. And it did open the door for more conversation. Um, of course, after George Floyd, then, you know, we saw more actual change in activity, but a lot of it was surface, you know, and did not penetrate the core of, of a lot of issues. And, you know, on the one hand, do we put on our patients caps and saying, okay, you know, things that have been put in place uh, in the past two, three years haven't had a chance to grow to fruition. And so maybe we don't see as much progress at this moment, but are we looking toward an industry down the road that is uh, more equitable? Um, I do definitely see us being celebrated more. Is that also a surface thing? Front rows definitely are more inclusive than they were, although I, I don't really go to fashion shows, but I, I'm going to go to APOTS next week and I'm going to go to, you know, I'll, I'll get around a little bit. But it used to be like you, you had to feel thankful for being included. And I think right. that there's less of that, um, you know. I would agree. Count all the jillions of times that you were the only, only black editor in a group or yeah. in a front row or being talked about in the media or any of that. You know, it was always kind of like one at a time. And I mm -hmm. do think that that has improved. Um, but when we talk about the industry as a whole, it is kind of a snail's pace. I mean, but I'm hopeful that a lot of the work that has been done in the past two or three years will begin bearing fruit because it takes time. And I think a lot of black designers too, who had, you know, small businesses that were, you know, they were serving a, a DTC customer really had to examine their business and say, do I want a wholesale business? Am I ready to have a larger business? And I think one of the interesting things about now that's very different than, say, 20 years ago, I think designers and brands are really kind of assessing, who am I? What bandwidth do I have? How large do I want or need to be? And how much do I want to sacrifice for yeah. that? Is it appropriate for me to be a mega brand? Is that what my message is? Is that what my design ethos is tailored to? Or maybe I want to do something that's more personal and is more expressive of who I am. And that means that I'm speaking to a smaller audience. And I think it's not just black designers and brands, it's the industry as a whole. When we look at 
how large the industry is and how large it's become in the past 20 years, it is overwhelming, you know, and every Mm -hmm. brand can't be a mega brand. We're already overproducing. There's just too much product. There's too much of everything. So I think it is a question that every designer has to ask themselves. It's like, okay, do I think I need to be huge or do I, do I want to be middle size or it should be okay. Your choice should be okay for you. It used to be that you were failing if you weren't following this playbook, you know, that wasn't like the recipe for success if you decided you didn't want to be massive. It's an interesting conversation. And I think it's wonderful to have choice. You can be successful on your own terms. What would you say in in watching and witnessing all of these things in the industry um, has changed for you personally in the last five years? You know, I've grown into that understanding that I do have choice. I'm really focused on you know, different kind of business model now. And I feel entirely comfortable here in Detroit with a smaller brand that has a mission in the community. So it's been very freeing to say, I'm going to tailor this business to where my heart and head is right now. Trying to work responsibly, trying to learn and teach more about sustainability, giving back to my community, all of that fuels the other creativity, you know, and being able to to kind of step off of the hamster wheel and do it in my own way at a pace that suits me at this stage in my life has been really, really, really fabulous. I'm super grateful to be able to do this on my own terms. I also want to talk about the shift that you've made to obviously to talk a lot more about sustainability and fashion and hope for flowers. Tell me a bit why that was important for you um, to be at the forefront. Right. You know, and a lot of it is education, you know, like 2000, I think it was 2016, maybe CFDA launched the first um, CFDA um, Lexus Fashion Initiative, which was this whole uh, cohort of designers learning how to work more responsibly, how to embrace sustainability, how how do you design? You know, it's impossible to be 100% sustainable. It's absolutely not possible, but we can all work in a much more responsible and mindful and intentional way, but it takes mm-hmm. work and it's a different approach. And I think a lot of us were trained one way and you sort of have to untrain yourself and retrain yourself to work another way. Um, but I think for me, the more I learned about it and the more, especially Lindsay, that I learned, you know, when you look at the hard facts, you know, 80% of garment workers are women. 80% of those women are women of color, whether they're black, brown, Asian, whatever. And yeah. They're living below the poverty line based on the wages that they're being made. And as fast fashion gained such a strong foothold in the industry, it just oppressed and pushed down, you know, all of those labor costs to like an incredibly indecent place, you know, where Mm -hmm. someone is being paid by the piece. Maybe they're making 50 cents to make a whole dress. It's really terrible. So I remember, you know, we went to the Copenhagen Global Fashion Summit and these statistics are being laid out. And it's like, it's, it's 
so disheartening and mind blowing, you know, and we look at all of the waste and we look at how especially Americans waste and then we ship our garbage to Africa and to Asia and they're living in piles of our like discarded goods. You know, you have to say to yourself, do I want to be a part of this system? You know, and I was really at a point where it's just like, do I leave the industry? Do I stop producing? Do I, you know, I don't want to be just adding waste. And I was yeah. working like a mother, you know, we we're like working 50 and 60 hour weeks to just like churn out these collections and the stores are insisting mm-hmm. that you ship every month, you know, and your business at a, is at a size where you need to ship every month for cash flow reasons. So you're just in this like kind of never ending cycle. And yeah. it was becoming more of a burden than a pleasure. And, you know, I said to myself, you're in this industry doing something that you love for a living and you're not enjoying yourself. That's on you. And if you're not proud of yourself because, you know, you're part of a problem, that's also on you. And I was like, I'm more intelligent than this. Either, you know, I'd switch careers or I learn how to do this in a way that I can be proud of. Yeah. So that was really all that was going on in my head between 2016 and 18. (laughs) And I finally was selected to be part of the cohort for the fashion initiative. And that was extremely helpful for me. It was like nine months of learning how to work more responsibly. And then we had to write a blueprint, which was basically a business plan, and we had to put it into action. I think that, you know, sustainability isn't just about materials. It's not just about process. It's not just about supply chain. It's also sustainable communities. It's personal. You know, are you, are you recycling? Are you composting? Are you minding your waste? Are you teaching this to young people? And I realized that it was also extremely, extremely elitist. A lot of the circles that we're in talking about sustainability and it's like, how do we make this accessible? It has to be accessible to all people. We all have to have agency to play a role in creating the future that we hope we can leave to the next generations. And that starts with young people. It starts with the babies because, you know, they will go home and say to their moms and their dads, how come we're not recycling? How come you're wasting this? That's within reach for every person, not just an elitist person or somebody who has the money to buy organic. You know, there are a lot of tools that are within reach of all people. So that was extremely important to me that I'm speaking to my audience here in Detroit and beyond and spotlighting some simple tools that we can all incorporate into our lives. I mean, for you personally, I know you we were talking about you just opened a permanent spot in Detroit for Hope for Flowers. So congratulations. Thank you. Um, What would you say you are most hopeful about in this next chapter? Well, you know, I want to continue the scope of what we're offering the community. We have free programming for youth and adults. We do art enrichment on Saturdays because that's just part of our ethos. It's like if you can approach things through creativity, if you can find that little seed in yourself that, you know, we want to nurture um, and that's at the core of Hope for Flowers, then you can approach problem solving in a creative way. And so we're teaching kids about little known black artists and Detroit artists and what their techniques are. But we're 
helping them to explore those techniques with a lot of times upcycled materials. You know, they're painting on, you know, old cardboard boxes or they're bringing things in from home that can be elements in their artwork. Um, and they're learning about the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. That's been a big part of our programming because, you know, when we talk about advocacy, yeah, clean water is a right. No poverty, quality education, caring for life underwater, caring for life on land. All of these yeah. are things that we have to be responsible for ourselves, you know. So um, they're learning about those those goals. And we're also teaching the same to adults. So that's an experience in, in creating in community. We've got like 18 or 20 adults that come in every Thursday evening and they create art together, you know, whether they're weaving or bookbinding or, you know, creating spirit dolls or memory boxes, using upcycled materials. They love that spirit of community of creativity together so this is building stronger communities and then we do community workshops around sustainability so teaching people how to mend clothes that's one of our next workshops we've done recycling composting uh, green gardening so we will continue with these workshops so to to keep this offering and to to develop a legacy here in Detroit where we've got a, a new generation of people who can say, you know, we we had great Saturdays at Hope for Flowers or we found community there. Cool. So we're excited to be in this new space. And then just, you know, working with young creative people here in Detroit, there's so much talent here. I've got a wonderful team here. Each one of them has talent. Maybe this is an opportunity that they wouldn't have been able to find locally. You know, you shouldn't have to go to New York to be a part of the industry if it's your passion. So to be totally. able to develop a team here and help them refine their skills and learn more about the industry, learn more about sustainability, um, that's a part of the legacy that I want to leave as well. Thank you so much. I so appreciate this conversation and um, I know our readers will really enjoy it. I hope so. In Her Shoes is hosted by me, Lindsay Peoples. Our lead producer is Taka Zen. Our engineer is Brendan McFarlane. I'm Lindsay Peoples, and thank you so much for listening.